Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. You're very welcome to this latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. This is a project in which I get the opportunity to speak at much greater detail to my guests than would be possible on The Last Word on radio, getting to spend an hour or so at my kitchen table with very interesting people who've done very interesting things in their lives, or are going to. And today's guest is a man who has done so much and yet plans to do an enormous amount in the future. He's in the aviation leasing business, founded a company called Avalon, which is now second or third biggest aviation aircraft owner in the world. We get into whether it's second or third in this interview. And he also recently uh, was given an honorary doctorate at DCU, um, which is one of the reasons why he agreed to sit down in my kitchen and chat to me for Magnified with Matt Cooper. This week's guest is Donald Slattery. So, Donna Slattery, I'm going to start by asking you a question. I've never asked any interviewee before. Start by telling us a joke, please. <laughs> so, I, I know why you're asking me that one. Um, and I <laughs> I suppose most of my jokes would be uh, probably, no, not probably, but unquestionably inappropriate. But um, So, this, this guy sitting in the bar in the golf club, one of the Alicadoos, and uh, he is uh, explaining to them about the golf ball that can never get lost. So he's explaining this golf ball. He said, well, it's of a sp- very specific color. He said, but the technology in this golf ball, which is quite unique globally, is that it sends a GPS signal uh, to your phone if it's in the rough. And as you get closer to the golf ball, your phone starts humming as you get closer. So you know you're getting closer. So you can never lose the golf ball. And the, the lads in the golf club were amazed with this because this was going to change their lives. And they said, well, where did you buy it? He said, no, no, I found it in the rough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair play to you for picking up the ball so quickly on that one <laughs> when I asked you. And you know the reason why I asked you that as well, because this was something you did recently when you were hiring people, wasn't it? When you went into a room full of brilliant graduates who were looking to join Avalon. Yeah, so... Um, We've been lucky to get to get to a scale in the firm over the last few years where we can enjoy the luxury of bringing in um, a number of graduates straight out of university every year. And I think that's a really important thing to do because it's fresh blood, fresh perspective. So each year we hire, you know, depending on the year, but six to eight graduates and they're recruited globally. But by definition, almost a, a significant percentage come from the Irish universities, which is great. And indeed, um, from a particular course that we helped um, launch at UCD, it's a master's in aviation finance a few years ago. So these kids are off the charts, like 6,000 points in the leave insert. You know, they've walked around Ireland backwards on one foot. Um, they've climbed Everest, 60, you know, it's just, I, I, every time I read the CVs, I just want to adopt them. And uh, we, have, we have a process in the firm where all of these CVs come in and they're actually whittled down through uh, an AI, artificial intelligence process, to kind of the last 50 and then this sort of human interaction. And then they're whittled down to the last 20. And these are, you know, the best of the best from, from, from the perspective of their process. 
And then that 20 are, taking in, are taken into Avalon for a full day of the, the Dragons Den and the psychometric tell me how you're feeling piece. And um, what would you do in this situation? What would you do there? And during the course of the day, we have a team of HR professionals who are uh, assessing them and observing and ultimately, say, pick the five or six that are, we're going to offer a role to. And um, the first year that we did it, which is about three or four years ago now, um, I was asked to present to all of the graduates around four o'clock that afternoon and give them the rah-rah speech, you know, why aircraft finance is an amazing industry, why Avalon is a very special place to work and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You've got the Willy Wonka golden ticket here. But at that point, which is four o'clock in the afternoon, the HR team have already picked the five or six graduates that are going to be... um, Offered the role, but I have no idea who they are. So I rock up to the auditorium with a very, very cool space in, in the office in Dublin. Uh, it's like a lecture theatre. So I rock in, you have these 20 kids, you know, doe-eyed in front of me, and I give them the speech. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for your time and effort. I said, but I've got good news and bad news. And of course, the jaws drop because they have no idea what's coming next, right? And I said, uh, the bad news first. The bad news is that irrespective of what I say here or what you might think, the five or six of you have already been picked. That's the bad news. So that means that 15 or 14 or 15 of you were not picked. That's the bad news. I said, the good news is I'm going to break the rules. Now, I look out the side of my eye and the HR team are like, oh, gee, what's going to happen? You know, what's he going to do now? And I said, I'm going to change the rules. So the very first one of you that stands up and tells me a joke right now gets the first job. And there was silence. Not one of them could or, you know, had the sort of either the confidence or the capabilities, or just the chutzpah to actually stand up and tell the joke. And that really resonated with me thereafter that we're producing these extraordinarily gifted, intellectually gifted people who are clearly knocking the lights out on the sort of academic metrics, um, who have clearly got you know hobbies and interests that are amazing, but can they actually communicate? And you know, in the 30 plus years that I've been in business or in life, if you're not able to touch that person at the other side of the table whether you're selling to them or not or just building a relationship if you've lost or you don't have that basic skill of comms or communication you're probably you know on a hiding to nothing so that really worried me and it kind of set me off on a whole other set of journeys thinking about that and encouraging the universities to actually irrespective of the degree course or the master's degree course they should have a semester on on acting how to present yourself how to speak uh, your your physical presence um, that should just be part of our academic curriculum, and uh, you know I think some universities are beginning to adopt that slowly, but I think it's really important. How did you learn it, or did you learn it, or was it something that came naturally to you? Um, so this might come as a surprise to you, or, or it may not. But um, my real name is Vinnie O'Brien. <laughs> Now, there will be people in Ennis, or there might be people in Ennis, who will remember the name Vinnie O'Brien. But Vinnie O'Brien was a radio DJ on a pirate, several pirate radio stations in Ennis during the 80s. Um, and so probably from about the age of 14, or maybe 15, I was happiest behind the microphone. 
and being Vinnie O'Brien. And, you know, it was a pure, you know, you will remember the Pirates. It was a great experience and great fun. And I just became total, totally addicted to the medium of radio and the art of communication. And I suppose it just came naturally from that. Why didn't you stick at it? Yeah, I know. I, you know, when I graduated, I, I, was, I did commerce in Galway and I graduated in 88. And you might remember, Matt, that was the year, it was either 87 or 88, that uh, the legislation came in to allow pirate radio stations become, well, it was 89. You, you, you could seek a license, right? Yeah. Today FM, etc. right? Century Radio Century was radio, the original right. uh, national station which failed. And I did, I did my BCom uh, business development thesis, if you like, on how to apply for and establish a, a local radio station. That's, that was my thesis in my commerce degree. And um, I kind of had two loves at the time. One was airplanes and aviation and the other was radio. And over the years, I've often wondered which one would have made me happier, you know, as a person. Forget about whether you make money or not. For like, where would you actually be happier? And um, I've always had a, just a deep passion for, for radio, the art of presentation, good interviewing techniques. And I suppose that... I don't know whether it's innate, but I've tried to work on it and refine it over the years. And, you know, eliciting information from a, an, an interviewee is this, exactly the same as a negotiation. Uh, you know, if you're negotiating with somebody at the other end, you're trying to elicit a moment where you can see a crack and then you go try and get the deal done. The reason I asked you the question was because many of the multimillionaires and billionaires that I've interviewed over the years do have that ability to communicate. They can be utterly charming. They can also, some of them by reputation, be utterly ruthless. Do you share that ruthlessness in your dealings with people? Um, you know, you, you read the characteristics of, you know, great leaders or business leaders or, or political leaders and ruthlessness, ruthlessness is, a, um, is a characteristic that comes up. Um, I don't think I'm ruthless, to be honest with you, but I think where I... Um, either fail or succeed, because you can look at it two ways, is I have a very, very low empathy score. I'm not an empathetic person. And uh, that allows you, I suppose, in business circumstances to be, to be ruthless. Um, so it's not a natural, you know, natural ruthlessness, but I, I do have a low empathy score. And you, you, and the next question is, why do you have a low empathy score, I suppose, is what you're thinking, Right. Um, and so that, that goes back, um, you know, and this is not a story that I've really shared before, but um, to 1978, right? Uh, I was 11 uh, and my brother was nine and our father died. And uh, he died of lung cancer, ultimately. He was one of, you know, he smoked 60, 70, 80 cigarettes a day. And he died of lung cancer. And I remember that day, 25th of August, 1978, the day of his funeral, um, standing in the garden after the funeral, you know, everyone's back at the house having the tea and the sandwiches, uh, basically saying to myself, nobody is ever, ever going to hurt me again. And I, I literally went from black to white or white to black at, on that day. And I've, I've, I've wrestled with that, you know, over, over the years around that empathy piece. And uh, I, I just think that's unfortunately 40 years of a low empathy score have compounded into into that situation today. So it's not ruthlessness, but it's a low empathy. Did that cause your drive, do you think? Does there a trauma at that young age? Did that provide the ambition and drive for you? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that's unquestionable. Um, and, you know, there's 
there's been a lot of research, actually, academic research about uh, early parental loss uh, in, in people and the consequential drive that comes from that. And, uh, you know, there was a piece of research done by Harvard 20 or so years ago looking at um, the CEOs of the S&P 500, so the 500 biggest companies in the United States, almost by definition in the world. A very significant percentage had lost parents early in their lives, early being teens or early 20s. And so unquestionably for, for me and, and, and my brother, uh, who was two years younger, um, you know, my father died. The reality of the situation was we had the nice house in Ennis, but we literally hadn't a penny, couldn't afford to turn on the heat. Um, and so it, it looked like the swan in the lake, you know, it looked lovely above the water, but below the water it, was, it wasn't great to say the very least. And so therefore, I had to go out and get a job. So I was working, you know, summer jobs, Saturday jobs from the age of 13 or 14 and, you know, handing up the few quid to, to mom at the end of every, every week. And so that work ethic, um, out of necessity rather than by desire, um, was, was in, innate in me from, from that early age. And, and, my, and my brother was the same. Although... I had the mundane jobs. I used to work in bars and collect glasses. And do pirate radio. I, I didn't get paid for the pirate radio. <laughs> well, I did later, actually, when I became uh, Vinnie O'Brien on contract. Um, but Johnny uh, Slattery, John Slattery, um, he was a super swimmer. So he, got, he, he became a lifeguard like from the age of 15. So he got that really, you know, the cool summer job with the, the broad shoulders and the lifeguard. And I was down in the Queen's Hotel in Ennis uh, picking up glasses in the bar. So... But that was probably good for you as well, was it actually for, for interacting with people? Yeah, look, you know, I think it's uh, like you think of the greatest conversations in the world that happen. Uh, they happen between the bar person and the person at the other side of the bar. Because you've got the full bell curve of life that's going on. You have somebody who's in the depths of depression, profound alcoholism, they're in there every day. And then you have the other end of the spectrum that somebody's in there to celebrate because something wonderful has happened in life. You know, the glass of champagne, not that there was much champagne in Ennis in the eighties, um, and so you adapt it right, and you could read quite quickly what that person needed or indeed didn't need. And a great skill of a bar person, I think, you know, is when to shut up. And in life, you know, having two ears and one mouth is a good thing. You know, do a little bit more active listening. I'm not great at that either, but um, as in, it's more two mouths, one ear, but. Anyway, so yeah, I think, I think you know, that, that working early in life, trying to figure out what's what and, you know, earning a crust um, is clearly very important, important in setting the sort of, you know, the, the guiding principles of a, of a business career. Tell us about Tony Ryan and your interaction with him. Yeah, Tony Ryan. Um, Tony Ryan, I, I started, I'd say there was th- three stages of our relationship, right? I met Tony Ryan, Dr. Tony Ryan, as he was then, in uh, around May, June 1989. So I'd, I'd just graduated from UCG, NUI Galway as it is now. I'd spent a brief period at Chorus Troctola, which was the precursor to Enterprise Ireland, the Irish Trade Board. They had a graduate programme at the time. 
And I got a job at GPA. I kind of blagged my way in. And I, I just didn't fit the profile at the time. But right? GPA was an enormous thing to get into at the time. It was the big beast of the aviation leasing business. And it was moving towards a planned stock market flotation within a couple of years. It's, it, it was, yeah. And, you know, from growing up in Ennis, so just to kind of make the, the unfamiliar familiar to people who may not know about GPA or, or, or where it was. But, you know, at that time, late 80s, Ireland... Not a very dynamic, exciting place. Certainly, you know, the year I graduated from college, I think 90% of the kids emigrated. Probably the same in your class. Yeah. So this, this GPA, there were two or three companies in Ireland at the time who were just world-class. GPA was one of them, based in Shannon, 150 people, and they were all gazillionaires. And they flew around the world, and they had this amazing lifestyle. And, of course, I loved airplanes. I had this passion for airplanes, and I had this emotional link with Shannon. And I just decided, this is where I had to work. I wanted to work here, and this Tony Ryan dude, wow, he looks and feels like somebody really interesting. And I blagged my, literally blagged my way in. First job was six o'clock in the morning in the, in the mailbox or the postbox. My job was to pick up the faxes, photocopy them, and make sure the executives had them. So my first phase of knowing Tony was 89 uh, to 93, 94 actually. Um, prior to 1992, we were going to be the largest flotation ever in the world. We were kings of the hill. Uh, we were, whatever we said was magic. We were dominating this nascent industry of global aircraft leasing. You couldn't make it up. It was a dream come true. Um, in 1990, early 1992, I borrowed personally, so at the age of 25, one million Irish pounds from AIB and Bank of Ireland, the local branches, if you like, in Shannon Airport, Recourse had no clue what recourse meant to buy shares in GPA because we were absolutely and totally confident that our IPO, which was going to happen six months later, was going to be a huge success. We were all going to become super rich and, you know, away we go. That didn't happen. Shares obviously went from $20 a share to $0.02 a share. Um, So I saw the rise and fall of Tony, um, but I saw him... Sorry, what was your role at this stage? So I had started out literally in the post box, right, um, which is the most, most, most junior role. But, but you obviously hadn't stayed there or you wouldn't have been borrowing a million quid. Correct. So I was lucky enough, out of a distress situation in the firm, I, I, I joined it and I, I knew the second I was there, this is absolutely where I needed to be. I mean, I was just a naturally, I was in the natural environment. It wasn't work. I would have worked 24 hours a day. It was just, it was an amazing thing. The energy, the passion, the pursuit of excellence, all of the principles that I've tried to bring forward in, in the various businesses I've been involved with since. So I, I, I got a job on the marketing team, which basically meant on an airplane, out trying to flog aircraft to airlines. Now that sounds simplistic, but at its essence, it is simplistic, right? And I was... Um, uh, sent down to South America. I mean, South America, <laughs> hello? <laughs> I thought South America was West Cork. <laughs> but So I was sent down to South America and I loved the Bra- Brazil and Argentina and Chile, and they loved me, right? This young kid and we just, it was my natural hunting ground. So I kind of rose up through the ranks on the marketing side qu- quite quickly. And so, um, you know, I got a few lucky breaks and all the rest of it. But then, you know, we hit the IPO. That's a disaster, I lose a million pounds, have to pay it back over the following 10 years. Tony's in the doldrums because he went from hero to zero and then subsequently he had to reimagine himself, which he did in remarkable terms. So that was phase one. Sorry, with Reiner, obviously. With, with, with Reiner and indeed other, other initiatives that he had. 
uh, particularly in the societal area, right? He, he really did give back and a major supporter of the arts and artistic endeavor. The second phase of ownership, or second phase of relationship with Tony was the worst. So I set up my first company in 1994. Um, it was a company called IAMG. It basically was a consultant, an advisory company. I'd advise airlines how to raise money or whatever it was, trying to live between the mouse and the cheese, okay? And the company was about two years old, and we were doing quite well. It was about five or six of us, and we were kind of making it up as we were going along, but it was doing quite well. And I get a phone call one day um, from Tony's PA. Now, Tony never made phone calls. His PA always made the phone. Hi, uh, is that Donald? Yes, um, I've Dr. Ryan for you, right? And so Tony always spoke in a kind of slightly West British accent at that time. He said, Donald, it's Dr. Ryan. I said, Jesus Christ, <laughs> uh, Dr. Ryan, how are you? He said, I've been watching your progress and I'd like to invest into your company. And like, I couldn't believe it. I mean, this was my hero in business, you know, who had conceptualized and developed GPA. And he invested um, $3 million in 1996 for 26% of this company. I mean, that was a fortune. And um, uh, the deal was that he was to be the chair chairman. He loved the title chairman. And I loved having him as my chairman. But it was a disaster of a relationship for 12 months. And he ultimately came to me because... He, we both mutually concluded. I was still a child. I was like 26 or 7, maybe 28. And Tony came to me after a year and he said, Donald, this isn't working. I'm kind of overdoing the accent now. But just not, for, not entirely. Just I for illustration. <laughs> um, and he said, you know, I'm from Tipperary. So the, the accent would drop. When to, he said, but there can only be one bull in the field. And he said, that's, that's you. Right, because he was trying to be the boss, and I was the boss, and 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 I sat back and I thought, wow, that that's that's pretty cool. Um, and I bought him out. I, I bought back his shares, and we gave him a good return on his money. He was invested for a year, and then the relationship died. Uh, he 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 and I just didn't connect for for several years after that. You know, as a consequence of that, I mean, he was you know he's a very proud and highly emotional guy, um, and so. We didn't speak for several years and the company grew and grew and it became quite a success. And then I got a phone call, maybe about three years later, four years later, again from his uh, assistant. Uh, Hi, Donald. Uh, her, her name is Anne, right? Um, I've got Dr. Ryan on the phone. And I said, oh, here we go again. And this is phase three. And he said, Donald, it's Tony. And I said, how are you, Dr. Ryan? I, I couldn't call him Tony. <laughs> and he said, I'd like you to come for lunch uh, in my new home, the Lions Domain, and uh, which is one of the most beautiful houses I've ever seen anywhere. Extraordinary, and and he bought it from the UCD Veterinary College, and it was just d destroyed, and he re restored it into a magnificent home. So down where I went, to, you know, I was kind of crapping myself as to what does he want, and we had bacon and cabbage. I remember it distinctly in the orangerie, and Tony loved really good wine, right? So we had a beautiful bottle of Montrachet. He sat there and he was always very elegantly attired with, the, you know, the whole, and he, he was just my, I loved him. And uh, we embarked on the third phase of the relationship, which lasted until he died, which was probably another two to three years maximum. And we'd catch up, we'd meet in different parts of the world. And he'd give me advice and counsel, but not 
as the boss, more as a consigliere. And it was a very beautiful relationship in that last phase. And I learned an awful lot from him. And I suppose the one big takeaway from my, my interaction with Tony was, if you're good enough, you're old enough. Okay, so he would give disproportionate levels of responsibility in his various different business endeavors to kids, children, including myself. And I've always tried to do that at Avalon, but or, or various other businesses, but it's become harder and harder and harder because, you know, a 24 year old 30 years ago is different from a 24 year old today in terms of their desire to take on responsibility or just blag, just make it up and get on with it. But Tony had a Tony was a talent spotter. Okay. And he could see talent, business talent, or artistic talent, actually. He was really in a wonderful relationship with the artistic community. And uh, I really loved him for the break that he gave me, uh, you know, when I was, whatever, 20, when I got in there, 22, when I started at GPA. about setting up your own aircraft leasing firm because you made a fortune out of the first one well fortunes are relative Matt <laughs> it, it's a leading question I suppose because it does bring us to the fact that you did lose a fortune subsequently yeah, and for- you're, you're open about that yeah, and yeah, yeah. I mean fortunes come and go um, I mean if you're in America um, and you're going to raise money from a venture capitalist for an idea unless you failed at least once or twice they generally genuinely won't take you seriously um, and so, you know, in Ireland for, for a long time, from a sort of cultural, societal perspective, um, you know, anyone who failed kind of saw them as a bit of a gumbean. I think that's changing, hopefully almost changed. Um, and so I always was comfortable with the fact that I, on several occasions, tried and failed. But, but on the other side of the balance sheet, tried and, and succeeded quite well. Um, and I think the combination of both makes you a better leader, business leader, business investor, and all the rest of it. So the first the first gig was in 1994, out of the GPA debacle. Um, that company was called IAMG. Um, and like <laughs> I think back now, I mean, we're, Jesus Christ. Uh, we, I started the company in 1994, and um, our first client was Cayman Airways in the Caribbean. Okay, Cayman Airways was run by an Irish man called Ray Wilson, who was ex Aer Lingus. And there was a tradition actually of Aer Lingus managers going to run airlines around the world and actually a lot in the Caribbean. And so Ray had a problem with a particular aircraft lease. And I think I cold called him and he said, we'll give you a shot. And I was 27. We sorted the problem out for him. And he sort of said to me, well, why don't you come and set up your company, base yourself in the Cayman Islands, right? And I'm thinking, that sounds like a bloody great idea, uh, aged 27. And, and we did that. And IAMG was effectively established uh, and based in the Cayman Islands from, from, from late 1994. 
And I built a company there and built a team there and ultimately built that up um, to a business by 2001 that uh, we sold that company, which was really an advisory company. It didn't have a balance sheet, right? So think of it as consultancy. Um, But I always yearned to get back into an environment where I had real capital, like significant capital to play with. And um, I remember in December of 2000, uh, on a sort of a roadshow in the city in London with one of my colleagues presenting uh, IMG's credentials and why we're so good. And we rocked up, cold called um, RBS, Royal Bank of Scotland, who had just acquired NatWest, and they'd gone from being this parochial bank to being one of the top five banks in the world. We rocked up and gave them the whole story about why aviation leasing was a wonderful industry. And they came back and said, we don't want to hire you for consulting services, we'd actually like to buy your firm. And what I had at the time was a group of 15 really top-class executives, advisors, who, you know, nimble, adapt, most of them Irish, not all. And I sold the company in May of 2001 uh, for Xbox, I can't even remember, but I'm sure it was a lot of money at the time, uh, to the Royal Bank of Scotland, to Fred Goodwin. Fred the Shred. Fred the Shred. And, um, and, and the timeline is important here because um, this was... Uh, four months before 9-11. Okay? So we start this brand, so I've, this advisory business, that's sold. We start from scratch. We have no aircraft, but we have a vision to build a world-class aircraft leasing platform. From zero. No airplanes, literally no people, no systems, nada. Just an, a vision, ambition, and a balance sheet. And they can be a very powerful combination. 9-11 happened. We bought three aircraft. Like, okay, and 9-11 happens, and that remains the most catastrophic event that ever occurred in the global aviation industry. Forget more so than COVID. More so than COVID, I think, because COVID was a pandemic, and you knew it was going to end. That's the thing with pandemics. There's always a, they're finite. 9-11 was a terrorist scenario, and people were afraid to get on airplanes because they were afraid of their lives. Um, and so structurally, I think it had a much more profound effect on the aviation industry. I remember uh, going to London. We were based in Dublin, right? Going to London with my my senior colleague at the time, whose name was Peter Barrett. Peter, who now runs the same business today. Um, And we pitched the board of RBS to say, you'd allocated us $5 billion for this business. We know it looks very dreary now. And you, you could quite rightfully say, you want to roll up the carpet and walk away. But instead of five, we think you should allocate 10 billion. And instead of these returns, we think we can do far more. And so we took it, Fred Goodwin signed off on that. And we took a con, totally contrarian investment strategy starting in Q1 2002. Which is similar to what Michael O'Leary decided in Reiner when he totally. went out and he bought loads of aircraft, yeah. placed orders believing that people would want to fly and that he would take advantage of everyone else being too nervous to actually order aircraft. Correct. And, you know, Michael, um, you know, is an extraordinary business leader and a very insightful guy, but I'm sure he probably picked that up from his time with Tony as well because he worked with Tony. And, you know, the Buffett line, buy at the sound of gunfire, all of that. Like, it's a lonely place when everyone's heading the other direction to say, you know what, we're going to go all in. But back to the RBS aviation story, we did go all in. And we went from literally a $0 balance sheet to three years later, 2004, when I decided to retire to the... I think we're the third largest aircraft financing business in the world. Now, yesterday, um, that business, the one I founded, um, 
acquired uh, another company called Goshawk, and today it has a $37 billion balance sheet. So Peter, still the CEO, uh, he knocked me out of that transaction yesterday from number two in the world to number three. So he's number two now, and Avalon is number three. But I was having a glass of wine with a friend of mine last night, and he said, well, Donald, it's all right. You, you're the only person in the world who can say you founded the number two and number three global aircraft leasing company, which I think is fair enough, right? Um, but hats off, uh, th- that business has been a great success. So that was the first major play, you know, in terms of global big dollars. And you used a word there, which I'm sure people listening, those who maybe are hearing of you for the first time, those who know you may actually have gone, what, retire? You decided to retire in 2004? Yeah, and retire, I suppose, in retrospect, was the wrong word because what I wanted to do was reimagine. Um, and, you know, in my mind, it was kind of like I needed to... I had a consigliere at the time. His name was Jim Worsham. He was an old guy in his 90s, ran McDonnell Douglas. You might remember they were one of the aircraft manufacturers. And Jim was an old-timer, old-school guy. And he used to always say to me, Donald... Um, and I was running 24-7, right? You know, 100,000 miles an hour every day, mad stuff. And he said, you know, you, you need to take time to smell the roses. And, and his other line was, let the world take a spin, right? So no matter how good something looks or how bad something looks, it will look different 24 hours later. And I just thought at that stage, 04, um, I, I just needed to take a break. You know, maybe I was burnt out, I don't know, but I needed to take a break. But I took a break for about a day or two, and I was down in Liscanor having a pint in Egan's pub, one of the greatest. This is an advert. Can I advertise Egan's? Of course you can. Because I, I own it now. It, it is a great <laughs> boozer, right? Um, in Liscanor. And I said, you know what? During my time building IAMG and during my time building the RBS business, I, I, I met with some of the major private equity firms in the world, like the Blackstones, the KKRs, the Carlisles, you know, the Titans or yeah. Barbarians at the Gate and all this stuff. And they were super impressive people. But they were no more impressive than people I knew or, you know, myself to a certain degree. And so I had a vision, which was, I I think I can build a uh, European-based but global uh, investment platform that can become, you know, the Blackstone of Europe. And so that that started out in in a journey that became Claret Capital. Um, And unfortunately, Claret started life out as a family office, so investing my family's balance sheet, my balance sheet, the money that I'd earned um, into deals. And then we started working with other like-minded families in Dublin uh, during that, that period of time who weren't in the property game. There was a whole, you will remember all of these, everybody making billions from property. We, the, the, the families within the Claret Group weren't really property people. So we said, you know what, that's not our expertise. Let's invest our capital in private equity and slightly more interesting uh, in transactions globally, venture capitals, you know, something a bit more yeah. funky. And that was going uh, swimmingly well for, for several years. And we grew. We had a platform in Dublin. We had uh, offices in New York. And uh, the global financial crisis hit. And literally every project that we were working on was correlated. And uh, we ended up, I ended up losing every penny I had uh, and about 50 or plus million more. Um, I, I owed banks an awful lot of money because I had not only had I invested my own cash, my own equity, but I'd then gone to various institutions and said, this is a great deal, give me more equity, you know, 
Which was derogar at the time, by the way. And was it recourse or non-recourse? Given oh, they your were, recourse experience yeah. back in 1992 when you bought the GPA shoes. Yeah, it, it was a mixture of recourse and non-recourse because, you know, at that time I was a positioned as, this is a serious business person who is investing his or own money, his own money behind this. And often I would borrow to supplement the check that I was putting in as well. So I was all in, full believer, total conviction. And these, a lot of these transactions um, were, were, were good investments. Unfortunately, when the world of the financial crisis kicked off in 07, became acute in 09, and then in Ireland, it really hit the, the skids in, 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 in 09. But it had kicked off at Lehman's, or even Bear Stearns, actually, was, was the real beginning of the, of the crisis. And frankly, I saw the Bear Stearns piece as uh, an opportunity to double down. Yeah. And I got that one wrong. Okay, so Claret didn't work out net net, but um, some of the investments that we did were 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 really really successful, um, and and frankly the biggest investment we made, <clears throat> excuse me, was in the Take Private of Hospital Corporation of America, which is the largest private hospital operator in the world. We partnered with Merrill Lynch and others on that, and that ended up being a huge success. So when we did the maths at the end of the day, if you were in every Claret deal, all probably ended up flat zero. So that wasn't necessarily a, the bad outcome if you consider the financial destruction that those faced, in, particularly in real estate. How did you cope, though, with your own financial position, particularly given that you, as you've already alluded to, had memories of where your family was yeah. back as an 11-year-old when your father died prematurely? Yeah, so it was a tough time. And, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of self-help, a lot of wine drunk every night. Um, but then I had an adopt. I got an adopted father. And uh, he's he's passed now, but I I, I I do, and I haven't spoken about this ever, but I think it's important uh, I, I share it because um, Fergal Quinn now passed, became a, a mentor and a consigliere to me. And the family were also investors with us in Clara Capital. That's well known, nothing proprietary about that. Um, and I remember in 2009, um, I was in absolute distress because we needed to <clears throat> wind down Claret and, you know, pay the redundancy and just clean, make it a clean exit, so to speak. And I needed two and a half million euros to do that. I had no cash. You know, just pay the bills and have everything done clean. And I went to Fergal one morning and I basically said, Fergal, I need a loan to do this. Here's what I'm going to do. And Fergal had invested in a lot of my deals. Right, And he'd lost money and made some money, but he knew the situation. And he looked at me and he said, I'll back you. He wasn't backing me for an investment. He was backing me to wind down. And um, I sat there and literally, I didn't cry in front of him, but I was crying inside that that just the generosity of this man, there was a probability he was going to get zero back from this. And, but he, he, you know, as the true um, entrepreneur that he was, and uh, uh, he just, he, 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 he was just generous beyond belief, right? And that two and a half million euros was the same as somebody giving me 2.5 billion euros. And so um, I was lucky enough to be able to pay him back and give him an appropriate return on that. And he wasn't looking for some egregious return. He knew I needed, you know, a dig out, right? And he gave me the dig out. And that dig out allowed me ultimately, to get Avalon going a year later. Because if I hadn't cleaned up Claret and done it the right and best way, there's no way I'd have been able to get Avalon going. So, you know, uh, I have to tip the hat to Fergal. God rest him. Um, he was just a genius. 
extraordinary man. I don't know if you ever had the chance yes, to interview him. Yes, I did. I've interviewed him, yes. He was fantastic. He was just, he was a joy and a gift. And there is a man who knew how to communicate. That is, I didn't know that. And I think, I hope you got the opportunity to express that to him when he was still alive. Um, well, it's it's very funny, right? Um, he actually expressed it to me uh, in, in two, what are we, two, I want to say 2000 and. I, I could mix up the years now, right? Um, but let's say it was 2004. So I get a phone call from Fergal, never through his assistant, Fergal. Fergal, Donald's Fergal. The family, wouldn't like to, the family would like to invite you for dinner to celebrate the success of Avalon. Now, Avalon was about uh, maybe three or four years. So this is 2014. Sorry, mix up the years. This is a recurring issue with entrepreneurs, right? Um, anyway, so we were about three or four years into Avalon and Avalon was going gangbusters. It was a gift from God. And Fergal invited me to dinner to celebrate my success. So what he did, um, we, we were in the middle of working on a documentary about a, a guy called Captain James Fitzmaurice, who was in the Irish Air Corps, who actually is the, the hero of the Irish Air Corps. And he was the first person to pilot an aircraft east-west so from Baldonnell to the States, against the winds. So in our world, like, this guy's a big deal. And when Fitzmaurice and his two partners ended up in the States after that trip, they went on a you know, whirlwind tour. They were, the, they were the, uh, the, the astronauts of their time. And so they ended up in Missouri somewhere. And Fergal had tracked down a menu from a gala dinner in some hotel. In, it wasn't in Missouri, but somewhere in the Midwest. He'd found it, bought it in an auction. Captain Fitzmaurice, and he, he framed it and gifted it to me. And, he, you know, basically the message was bravery. And, you know, I was uh, speechless on the night. And he, other members of his family were there, including his sons. And I just, geez, you know, what a, what a genius. What a man to be celebrated, a person to be celebrated. So, yeah, I did say thanks more than once. And, uh, but he said thanks to me, which was like unbelievable, unbelievably generous in all respects. about Avalon, third biggest aircraft leaser in the world, previously second biggest. <laughs> well, we're still second, actually, because... Uh, Until the deal is completed. Yeah, Peter has to get his regulatory approvals, which I'm sure he will, but so we're still second, but we're probably going to be third, but that's all right, too. Um, it's a bit like the community games, as long as you get a medal. <laughs> how, um, big, how big is it? And just explain for people who are not familiar with the aircraft leasing business, Yeah, just... The sort of sums of money involved and the aircraft involved, yeah. the numbers of aircraft. Yeah, so a lot of people don't know what aircraft leasing is, so I'll just keep it sort of very... Everybody knows what renting a car is like, okay? You don't own it, you rent it for a day, a week, a month, and then you give it back. So that's basically what aircraft leasing is, except that the term that it's rented for can be, you know, 10, 12 years, right? So there's about... Um, Round numbers, right? There's about 30,000 airplanes in the sky. It's a little bit less, but let's say it's 30,000 flying around the world. Half of those are not owned by the airlines. They're owned... 
by leasing companies like Avalon. And we buy those aircraft new from Airbus and Boeing years in advance of when they're going to deliver. We put down very large sums of money in deposits and we hope to God we can find an airline to rent it to. Um, and so that, that's kind of it in a nutshell. It's, it's, it's as simplistic as that, but it's a very complex, complex industry. And so Avalon uh, today um, is a $30 billion company in terms of the size of its balance sheet. Uh, it was zero, obviously, when we started it. Um, actually, on the 20th of May 2010, so th- this, this week, I'm not sure when this will go out, but on the 20th of May 2010, Avalon was zero. It had committed capital from its investors, no airplanes, and a team of maybe 15 people. So it was like what I did back in 2001. And um, so over the last 12 years, it's, it's become, you know, a powerhouse in the industry. Um, we've positioned it, um, the, the business, so that as the leaders of the business, we took all of our experiences from our previous incarnations to create a working environment that was just beyond belief in terms of the vibrancy. Um, we've, we've worked on having a higher purpose. So it's more than just a vision or a strategy. Like, why are we doing this? And what we're finding in the last couple of years is the best talent in the world. They want to work with companies that have a purpose in life. Why are you doing it? Well, our ultimate purpose is to lead the decarbonization of the global aviation industry, which is a multi-decade audacious goal. Okay? And it took us nine or ten years to figure out that higher purpose. Okay? And the inevitability of having to decarbonize the aviation industry uh, is now front and center in everything that we do. And, you know, last year you may have seen that we took a step into the electric aircraft. And I want to get to that okay. in a little while. Just stay on the big stuff yeah, first. Yeah, so the big stuff. So Avalon, you know, nearly 900 aircraft, uh, 160 airlines. I mean, every airline in the world that you could think of is probably a client. Uh, we have a team of 300 people, uh, 220 or so headquartered in Dublin, offices in Hong Kong, Singapore, Shanghai, Sao Paulo, you know, you name it, we're, we're there. So we operate on a 24-7. And um, I, I think is highly respected by its competitors and its peers as being best in class at what we do. But decarbonisation, how is that going to work? Because I've actually been at aviation conferences, including the Silk annual event done in Limerick. And last year, there was a lot of talk about alternative fuels to kerosene and the rest of it. And... It doesn't seem like we're anywhere near it yet, are we? So let, let's let's put it in perspective, right? So total uh, global emissions, 100%, right? In any one day, week, month. The aviation industry globally contributes less than 3% of the 100. So that's our sort of piece of the pie. Um, and it's been more or less that size for the last 30 years, even though the fleet has doubled. So what that means is that the aircraft that are coming online are much more efficient in terms of fuel efficiency than than those. But it's still 3%, and therefore it is incumbent upon us to get that much lower. There are two ways to move the needle on that, and it's going to take 30 years from sitting here now in 2022 for that to become meaningful. Two ways. The first is hydrogen-powered aircraft. Um, And my brother... John, who I mentioned earlier, my only brother, is the chief executive of GE Aviation, which is the largest uh, engine, commercial engine manufacturer in the world. He's the number two executive in GE worldwide. 
Um, he has set his personal stall out to build the first hydrogen-powered air, uh, engine for commercial aviation. And he is investing, or GE is investing, billions of dollars on that right now. Our job in the leasing side is, you build the engine, prove to us that it works, and we will buy it. So there's a symmetry from the Slattery brothers' perspective, I suppose. Um, other engine manufacturers are also working on the same thing. So it's a combined effort to get there. So hydrogen-powered aircraft will come online the middle to the end of the next decade. And it, they'll be refined and refined and refined. With that, you mentioned sustainable fuel. So sustainable aviation fuel is the other big needle mover, right? So instead of kerosene, a form of fuel that basically is biomass. So staking crap in the, in, the, in, the, in the dump and turning it into fuel. The technology is there to do it. You can actually do it. So the, so the, the, the technology isn't the issue. Can you do it at scale, though? No, this is the issue, right? So you need to actually grow a lot of vegetables that the world isn't going to eat in places in the world that are very arid, and then you need the refining capacity to grow it. And the, the U.S. has the capacity to do this in scale, okay? And, uh, but it, to actually make that a reality, we'll need at least $100 billion of CapEx. And so therefore, it has to be a public, i.e. government and private initiative. Um, and there is a roadmap to do it, all right? There is a roadmap to there, to get there. Um, uh, but again, we're talking 20 to 30 years to kind of crack the nut. The other end of the spectrum is the electric, electric piece, which is uh, leading edge, deep tech, but it's, it's the baby step part of that. That's the bottoms up piece. Tell us about vertical aerospace. I'm fascinated by this because on a recent edition of Magnified, we had Bobby Healy here sitting in the same seat you're in at the moment, talking about his drone business, yeah. Mana Aero. And it struck me, vertical aerospace is a bit like larger drones which carry four people. Yeah, so... Um, but obviously much more complicated than that, given the... It, it's, it's, it's deep tech, right? So okay. what we're doing, we're building an aircraft that is all electric, um, which means zero operating emissions. It has the capacity to vertically take off. Like a helicopter? No, no, not like nope. a helicopter. So there'll be people listening who know how helicopters... For a helicopter to take back, it actually rises up vertically, then it needs to reverse, tip the nose down, and then needs about 100, 150 metres of effectively a runway, a virtual runway to take off. Um, they can land vertically, but they cannot take off vertically. Um, this aircraft takes off vertically and lands vertically. But more importantly, it's 100 times quieter than a helicopter. And this is why helicopters haven't become ubiquitous, outside of the fact they're very expensive. They're just very loud. They're ugly things, right? And are they safe? Helicopters yeah. or, or the VX4? The helicopters to start Well, with. helicopters are, uh, I would say, somebody described them as, you know, you're flying in a constant state of emergency, right? Um, <laughs> I love helicopters myself in terms of the, you know, the noise of it, but... Um, the aircraft that we're designing w is being certified to the same safety standards as a 737 or an A320, okay? And so ultimately, if you imagine five, ten years from now, in the biggest cities of the world, uh, lifting people directly out of cars from central business district out to the airport uh, in minutes. So, for example, New York, okay? Uh, I, and, and the application in Dublin will be zero. The, it, you need to be these huge urban centres, of which there are... 50 major metropolises. Which is why you're looking at places like Turkey and Brazil. Sao Paulo, Tokyo, Istanbul, Mexico City, um, you know, Jakarta, uh, Kuala Lumpur, these places. I mean, you literally can't get from one side of the city to the other. 
uh, without taking hours and hours. So, but to give the New York example, because that'll be familiar for people. So downtown Manhattan um, to JFK in a car can take you anything from an hour to two hours, depending on the day, whether it's this, that, the other. It's seven minutes from liftoff to landing, seven minutes. And we think we can get the price point of that down to equivalent of an UberX per seat. So they call it $60, $70, per seat, right? So it's going to change um, urban, urban mobility. And um, Sorry, describe the actual machine to me. Describe the machine to you, right? I mean, so does it have like it has a, a helicopter? Does it? No, actually... it, it has a wing, right? So the wing is fifteen meters. In fact, I saw I was actually yesterday in Bristol in the research and development facility that we have, and I saw the future. And I got you know literally the hairs in the back of the neck because if this thing works, it's going to change the way people move around the world. And if Bobby's idea works, it's going to change the way people consume. I totally agree with him on that. Um. So think of, think of it, it has the, the, if you looked at a helicopter, you know the shape, of the, the body of the helicopter. So imagine that, right? But it's got a wing. And on each wing is two rotors, okay? So there's four rotors in total going forward and four to keep you horizontal. Um, sorry, not horizontal. Four to rise vertically and four to go forward. Um, and so there's no single point of failure, in a helicopter, you can have a single point of failure. So they will be extremely safe and electric powered. And so it'll four passengers, one pilot. Okay. Will it be self-piloted? Yeah, so the autonomous issue is a big issue in aviation. You know, when, when, when. The technology actually exists to fly aut- autonomously, okay? The reality is that the regulators, um, in my mind, will not certify an autonomous aircraft probably for another 10 or 15 years, number one. Number two, I don't think I'd get in an aircraft without a pilot, would you? Our kids might, but our kids' kids most certainly will. So, you know, we're planning for 50-year leaps from where we stand here. So autonomous uh, aircraft, whether it's big commercial airplanes or the VX4, our eVTOL, will definitively be autonomous. Um, and it, But it's probably 10 to 15 years away. So these... Machines, the VX4, carry how many people, a pilot, and how many passengers, and how much luggage as well? Would it yeah, take? so uh, it's designed to fly four people 120 miles, up to 120 miles, at 200 miles an hour, and with 20 kilos, um, or as my daughter say, 20 kgs, um, of a bag, okay? If you have one passenger, he or she can carry, you know, couple of hundred kgs of, 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 of luggage. So it's basically uh, going to be a very efficient way of getting around the world, or getting around the, the major global cities. Okay, what's your involvement? How did you get involved in this? So it came out of um, this higher purpose thing, right? During the pandemic, like wrestling with your soul, saying, you know, what's this all about? Um, okay, we're going to be the thought, we Avalon will be the thought leader in decarbonization. Oh, God, how do we do that, right? Hydrogen, okay, that's my brother, he's doing that. Don't want to get in that parade. <laughs> um, SAF, no, we don't have 100 billion. That's, that's government initiative. We can be thought leaders, but we can't, okay? Electric, mm, how does that work? Then we did a deep dive into the electric space. That led us to this nascent industry of eVTOLs. There's a bunch of players worldwide trying to figure it out. We, we did our work and decided these guys called Vertical Aerospace, based in the UK, uh, founded by an Irishman. Um, 
we thought, you know what, this, this feels like the aeroplane that could be a success. We invested. Uh, I worked with uh, Stephen Fitzpatrick, the founder, to take the company public. So I was lucky enough um, for the second time in my life to be on the podium at the New York Stock Exchange in December. Uh, I am so passionate about this project um, from just an, an emotional passion. And I said earlier I wasn't empathetic, but I might actually be empathetic about this one. Um, I have become the non-executive chair of the business because it is a startup in many in many respects, but a startup with several hundred on the balance sheet. Yeah, exactly, because you've pumped the money in. But what's also very interesting is it'll be a few years yet before any of these are actually yeah. ready to fly. But you've already purchased a significant number of them. What is it, 500? And you've managed to lease them all already. Yeah, yeah. so we've committed to buy them and we have done deals with airlines globally who have committed to lease them um, based on the aircraft being certified. So it's, you know, it's binary. Either it works or it doesn't. And that's the nature of aerospace. But the reality is that the airlines have embraced this technology and they, they see this as the future. It's not going to replace the 737 or the A320, but they see it as a supplemental way of servicing their customers. And, you know, we're talking to the cargo operators. It's not just passengers. You can have, think about medical evacuation. Think about cargo. So, you know, Bobby's um, drones, right? So FedEx or DHL or UPS or Amazon land at the airport and they're big aircraft. They put the pack packages from there into our aircraft that takes it 50 miles from the airport into the warehouse. And then Bobby's drones, you know, I haven't ever spoken to Bobby about this. but I must introduce the two of you. <laughs> um, so Bobby's drones or somebody else's drones will take that single package or whatever it happens to be to, you know, Matt Cooper at home. And that's the way the world is going to work. Okay, but then that raises a question which I also posed to Bobby when he was here. Air traffic control, safety issues. Yeah. Will the regulators actually allow you to run an airborne taxi service in those cities? Yeah, so that, that is the core question. So first of all, can you get it certified? Is it safe to fly in, right? And the people who regulate that are called EASA here and the FAA in the States, okay? So they've set the protocols and standards. We either meet them or we don't. It's binary. Then the individuals who set the rules or the protocols, if you like, for flying around is a, a, an entity called Eurocontrol. Eurocontrol is based in Brussels and they're responsible for all of the airspace of Europe into the middle of the Atlantic, including the UK post-Brexit. Eurocontrol, coincidentally, is actually run by Eamon Brennan, an Irishman who is the head of the IAA. They are years ahead of other regulators around the world defining the rules and regulations for the usage of drones in their space and ultimately eVTOLs. So there'll be very clear, very defined rules that we will operate to and away we go. Now, away we go is a big leap forward, but you know we know how we're going to get there. It's fascinating stuff. Okay, I could spend hours talking to you, but I do realize that we have a limit on time for these podcasts. So there's a couple of things that I want to finish up by asking you about. First of all, getting planes out of Russia. I mean, mm. Do you have as significant an issue as other lessors have with effectively the Russians having stolen aircraft? Yeah, well, we fundamentally the same issue, um, which is our airplanes were stolen by the Russian government. And uh, that is a fact. And we have not been able to get them back. And we've had to take the brutal financial hit of writing those off in the first quarter. Thankfully, um, our relative exposure is quite small relative to the size of the balance sheet, you know, call it less than 2%. 
Um, some of our other competitors um, have, have bigger exposures, and it's not for me to throw stones, right? At glass houses, would never do that. We've had exposures in other parts of the world that have gone wrong, not like a Russian situation, more like defaults. So um, Russia has, I don't know, four or 500 aircraft that they've effectively stolen. This now moves to an insurance um, litigation claim, uh, and we'll see how that all plays out. Because of the nature of the issue, I'm not really, I'm not, I can't really get into it. Oh, no, but Avalon's shareholding structure has changed in recent years, hasn't it? I mean, who are your main owners at this stage? So we have two shareholders. Um, we are 70% owned by Bohai, which is a Chinese-listed entity. Um, they have two major investments, um, ourselves and the second largest container leasing business in the world. So when you go down to the port, all those 40-foots, we own half them. My, my sister company does, and they're leased to the shipping companies. Um, and our second shareholder is Oryx, uh, which is one of the largest financial institutions uh, based in Japan. So presumably the Chinese have certain influence over the Russians. Would that help to get the aircraft back? Um, they may or they may not, but it doesn't filter down to the governance of Avalon. We, we run our business sort of um, in a very independent uh, perspective from the, from, from, from the governance aspect of it. Uh, so if the Chinese government has influence with the Russian government, best of luck to them, right? But it won't change the way we're managing Avalon on, on a day-to-day basis. Recently, at one of the major aviation conferences that was held in Dublin, you had quite a crack at Boeing. Why are you laughing when I say that to you? I'm laughing because... Um, I'm laughing because... Do you know the way um, when you get into the spotlight because you've said something bold? I mean, bold as in... Um, not bold, bold as in bold boy, but bold straightforward the spotlight's on you um, and then you're in the spotlight but if somebody else says something even more bold then the spotlight moves on to that person so thanks be to god mick o'leary said something really bold on monday at his earnings but i 100 agree with him 100 sorry what did o'leary well o'leary say? um well what i had said was that uh, boeing had lost its way um the culture um was broken and it needed to be reimagined. That's pretty strong criticism from one of the world's biggest aircraft leasing companies, which would presumably buy a lot of Boeing aircraft. Yeah, we're a major, a major customer and they're partners, right? So it wasn't easy for me to say that. And it wasn't off the cuff. Um, but the reality is they're not delivering 787s. They've delayed the 777X. They, they, the MAX 10 isn't certified. And clearly the MAX grounding and, you know, related issues around that. It's been horrible um, several years for Boeing, but it's been horrible for the customers as well. Um, and so I always believe, Matt, that the success of any company is, is ultimately down to the nature of the culture of the business. And I think, I do believe that Boeing has lost its way. Equally though, <clears throat> excuse me, and I did say this, I think they will find their way. Their systematic, systematic, system, system, they're too important. <laughs> I knew I'd get that wrong. Um, and they'll, fi- they'll figure it out, but they need to figure it Just out. Just in the same way that GE is trying to figure itself out with your brother is effectively the number yeah. two. Uh, correct. And reimagining their, their role in the world. <clears throat> and, you know, uh, it was announced that Boeing want to move their, their uh, headquarters to, to Washington. I don't know if you saw that. Yes. If I, if I was on the board of Boeing, I would say... I can see the logic of that because all the other defense companies are in Washington. I would move the headquarters back to where it started, in Seattle, the beating heart of the business from a commercial perspective, and just go back to basic principles. Anyway, Mick gave them a hard time on Monday. I'm not going to recalibrate what Mick was saying, but he was dead right as well. Okay, there's a couple of things just to finish. Is there a sibling rivalry between yourself and your brother, given that you're both enormous high achievers? 
Um, well, I don't know if he's a high achiever. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we work together, right? Yeah. So uh, the, 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 the nature of the relationship is um, unbelievably deep and strong. And we're not, we're not competing. He, he runs a major global manufacturer. I run an aircraft leasing business. So in many ways, they're symbiotic. But we do, I think, given how lucky we've been in the aviation industry and the respective paths that we have built, we both feel we have a responsibility on our shoulders as business leaders, you know, to really push this decarbonisation agenda forward. So we're completely aligned with that as the higher, mutual higher purpose. And any sort of rivalry is is, is more down to uh, sport or something else like that. And uh, but, but we don't talk business at the, at the dinner table. It's not allowed. And a final thing. Uh, like Michael O'Leary, you stayed in Ireland, you live in Ireland, and you look to give back to Ireland. I know you have a major initiative that you're contemplating at present, Innovate for Ireland. Are you in a position to tell us about that? Yeah, I'd love to share it with you because I think I think it's important. <clears throat> and um, I'll try and keep it as brief as possible. No, take, take your time, yeah. take your time. So just to put a bit of context on it, um, about two and a half, three years ago, I put a small team of young people at Avalon and empowered them to travel the world to ask and answer the question, what makes, um, what makes other parts of the world very successful in terms of innovation ecosystems and the entrepreneurial ecosystem? What is it? What are the characteristics? So places like Palo Alto in California, Berlin, Tel Aviv, Stockholm, um, uh, what is it about these places? So they went around the world, um, did their research, came back, and, and we wrote a, a research paper called Project I. I for Ireland, I for innovation. And it was a sort of white paper. And it said, here are the characteristics for success. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, blah, blah. And they interplay, and some are more important than others. Some are policy, some are fiscal, some is culture, some is, you know, it's a whole bunch of things. But we try to lay it out in plain, simple English. One of the characteristics was that the more high caliber, high quality PhD research, you have going through a country's university system. And if you nourish that research appropriately, the more innovation will occur and the more entrepreneurship that will derive from that, the more business entities that are established, the more jobs that are created, the more share societal value can be created, right? So it's, it's a correlation. So I thought, okay, wouldn't that be a good one to zero in on and say, okay, if I did one thing, what would it be? So Project I has moved to Innovate for Ireland. And Innovate for Ireland's vision is as follows. We are going to recruit and provide scholarships for 1,200 of the best and brightest minds in the world, including Irish minds, to come to Irish universities on the island to do their research and tackle the grand challenges of the world. We will pay them a stipend that will be akin to the best in class in the United States universities, so the Barclays, the MITs, the Princetons. Um, we will provide them a wonderful experience when they're here doing their research, a holistic Irish experience. Um, we will also have them intrinsically linked with enterprise, with the private community, solving their industrial challenges. And my vision is it becomes the go-to PhD, um, uh, PhD program in the world. It's an Island of Ireland initiative. It will move the needle based on the research we've done. And I've been working with on this project for six months with Professor Breen McCraw, 
who was the former president of DCU, your alma mater, correct? One, one of them. One of them. And I, I do also want to say a big thank you to Brian for the work he did on behalf of the nation on the vaccination program. Okay. So Brian and, Brian and I have been working on this um, uh, for the last six months. We are very close to getting a commitment from the government to help us fund this. It's a 300 million euro project to do it in the scale that we want to do it. And scale is key here. We are working with Science Foundation Ireland and all of the stakeholders in the, in the island of Ireland's academic fraternity. Everybody wants to make this a reality. Okay, And in 10 years from now or 20 years from now, these I-scholars, as they will be known, will be as recognised as a Fulbright scholar or as a Rhodes scholar. Will they be able to tell a joke, though? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> how, how much money do you need from the government to do this? And how much is going to be pitched in by the private sector? So um, we've pitched the government on the elegance of... Um, rolling a program that was similar to what Chuck Feeney did 30 years ago. Now, so 30 years ago, Irish universities as a group were ranked below Bangladesh. That's a fact, right? Chuck Feeney, uh, through Atlantic Philanthropies, dollar for dollar with the Irish government, invested in all the major campuses of Ireland and built wonderful facilities. Our vision is to obviously fill those facilities with the best brain power in the world. So our proposition to the government um, has been... For every quid, euro I raise privately, you will match it. And I think the government fully and totally appreciate what we want to do. They have challenges in terms of expenditure and, and other unexpected expenditures at the moment. So we're working our way through it with the government. Avalon has committed 10 million euros to this project. And AIB, Colin Hunt, my great friend, has also committed 10 million we have about 15 meaningful conversations going on with Irish and multinational businesses based here who are completely bought into this and we're trying to figure out how we get them to commit financially. But the enabler is the government's check. And so, um, you know, it's audacious. There's no question about that. It will move the needle for this country. And people will look back, I think, in 30, 40, 50 years and say that was a moment post-pandemic. You know, it's a sovereign calling card, I believe. And, you know, if you're Martin Shanahan at the IDA or Leo Clancy at Enterprise Ireland, you know, here's the five reasons you should come to Ireland. Talent. Well, here's what we're doing on talent. Bum, 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 bum. So I'm convinced, Matt, as I'm sure you can see, but I think it's important. Where do you get the time to do all this? Because you're running Avalon, you're doing this. I do know you go to see Claire Hurling, you go to see <laughs> Munster Rugby. You play a bit of golf, not particularly well. Correct. But where do you get the time? Well... Uh, you know, it's it, somebody said to me last year, it's not what you do that matters, it's what you can make happen. So I, I, through my network and capability, I can make a lot happen. I don't necessarily need to do all work. And Innovate for Ireland, Brian is doing the hard work. And we have a, a team, we've put a small team on it. But Brian is doing the hard work. And I'm enabling Brian. And Brian's vision you know, because he's an academic at heart. Uh, and then, you know, obviously going to see Claire uh, beat Cork, Claire beat Tipperary, and I think fair enough with Drew with Limerick. They're, they're really important. They're moments of truth, Matt. You've got to be there. <laughs> All right, listen, there's about 101 other things I could talk to you about, but I am conscious of your time and the listeners' time. Uh, Donna Slattery, it's been fantastic having you here for Magnified. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Matt. Pleasure. 
Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul.